Good morning. I'm Mike Overstreet, a pastor at Element 3 Church, and I welcome you to this live feed. Uh, today we're going to continue on in our series, God Part 2, where we have been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, exploring it as a sequel to the Exodus story. The Old Testament story about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt to reshape them for his purposes, as a conduit for his blessing and his healing to the world. And we've seen how important this Exodus story is. You see, for Matthew, the Exodus is at the heart of who Jesus is and why he came. Because it is his central conviction that in Jesus, we find God announcing a new Exodus crashing into our world to set it free. That in Jesus, God is writing his ultimate and final chapter of rescue for his world. And last week, we saw that there was a major shift in Matthew's gospel. It was a turning point. We read this section where Jesus was acknowledged as the central figure from the Old Testament, the one that was predicted to come, this character called the Messiah. It was God's promised king, this long-awaited hero of God's story that had been promised would one day come to finally bring God's exodus rescue to his world and to make things right. But we also saw how Jesus, having been proclaimed the Messiah, immediately upended all expectations of what the Messiah was here to do in first century thought. To the shock of his first century Jewish disciples, Jesus began to teach that he would bring about God's rescue in this radically upside down way. You see, they expected the Messiah to be a warrior king who was sent by God to defeat the enemies of God, which for them were the Romans. But Jesus does this radical thing. He says that actually he's not here for that. He is here for a different enemy. He is here to defeat evil itself. And in this shocking reversal of expectations, he says he's going to somehow defeat evil by allowing it to do its worst to him. He says that his victory would come not through power and might, but through sacrificing his life willingly for others and for God's world. He says, this is my true mission, to give my life and to die. And then he begins calling his disciples to follow him into that mission. And this sets up the climax of Matthew's gospel. Having stated who he is and what he came to do, Jesus moves into the final confrontation, the final moment of his new Exodus mission. He sets his face towards Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel and the heart of God's people. And he arrives during Passover week to call God's people to accept this new kingdom path this new kingdom mission of the Messiah, this new Exodus vision of the world. And what we're gonna find is over his last seven days in Jerusalem, Jesus is gonna challenge, he's gonna confront the leaders of God's people to go a different way. And things are going to rapidly escalate in opposition and rejection. In just seven days, Jesus will go somehow from a small town rabbi and healer and miracle worker to being executed as a false prophet, a false messiah, and a rebel king trying to lead an insurrection against Rome. And this is the climax of Matthew's gospel, these seven days. This is the culmination of Jesus' new exodus story in Matthew's mind. This new path forward that Jesus offers and challenges and gives to those who wish to be God's people to follow. So it is these seven days that we're going to sit with, we're going to unpack, we're going to explore from now until Easter. We're just going to see how this culminates the new Exodus story. 
And to begin to unpack this final week of Jesus' life, I want to set the scene for Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And to do so, I actually want to start by talking about the nature of anxiety. Because I believe anxiety sets up a crucial backdrop for what takes place over Jesus' final seven days in Jerusalem. You see, I think for many of us, anxiety is a confused term. I think we often misunderstand it. I think many of us hear the word anxiety and we just think it's synonymous with fear. But in recent decades, modern psychology has actually come a long way in understanding that there are profound differences between fear and anxiety. See, fear is a biological response to a stimulus. It is natural and it's temporary. It's a survival response and it's actually baked into us for good reason. What fear is, is it's our natural response when a stimulus that we don't know comes at us, a threat, something that we're unsure about. And our body, to make sure we stay safe, jacks up our adrenaline, it goes up, our heart starts beating, we get more focused, we kick into a fight or a flight response to get safe. And once that stimulus is gone, what happens? The body comes down and we get a sense of relief. This is a good thing, right? It kept us from being mauled by lions uh, many years ago. And, but there's a difference, you see, because anxiety, on the other hand, is a very, very different phenomenon. Anxiety is tied to human beings' ability to hold memories and then to predict future outcomes based on those past memories. See, what happens is over the course of our lives, we experience many, many, many moments of fear. And many of them go unresolved. We never actually get to the point where we let them go. They stay in our memory. And in that space, that memory and that prediction of ability that is so good for our brain can actually start to get a little funky. It can start to go into overdrive. What happens is our brains begin to constantly look for and to try to predict and to try to avoid potential threats, whether they are in front of us or not. Our brains, in other words, just start staying in that mode of constant, generalized anticipation, foreboding, and dread, whether a stimulus is present or not. It becomes just an underlying constant fear, a sense of worry, just a generalized sense that something bad will happen to me. Thus, in anxiety, the feeling of fear stays with us because it has no clear stimulus, and since it has no clear stimulus, it has no sign for when relief is supposed to come. That doesn't mean the brain doesn't try to create that sense of relief anyway. I mean, this is the fascinating and unique part of the human brain. It still tries to find a way to get us to calm down. It's like if we have this balloon, right? Over the course of our lives, we have these experiences that develop anxiety within us. And what happens is the anxiety stays underlying. It stays unseen. It stays dormant. That is until stressors come that trigger that memory and that prediction ability. And with each stressor, it grows, it grows, and it grows. It grows until it gets so imposing that the brain can't ignore it anymore. And what happens then is a trigger comes and suddenly it brings this to the surface. And in that moment, we get stuck in fight and flight. And our brain naturally tries to help us, even though it can't actually resolve the deeper issue of anxiety. So what does it do? It tries to handle it by letting some of the air out. It tries to cope. It just tries to decrease the size of the balloon because it realizes it can't get rid of the balloon. 
And it does this by distilling and simplifying all of that anxiety into a problem simple enough that it can resolve to create at least a feeling of relief. In other words, it develops a coping mechanism, something that eases the feeling of anxiety through simplification, resolution, and temporary <sighs> relief, which creates a feeling of relief, but is the anxiety actually resolved? No, I mean, this is the danger of it. The deeper issue of anxiety is still there. It's still waiting to inflate all over again when the next stressor comes, which means that when the next trigger and the next stressor comes, it repeats because it was never dealt with in the first place. That is, until something big enough comes along and blows it up so much, the balloon gets so big that you can't avoid it anymore, you can't cope with it anymore, those coping mechanisms stop working, and at that point, what happens? We enter crisis. We are forced to face it, to work to heal with it, or we face disaster, panic attacks, psychological breaks. This is how anxiety can break us. And I bring this up because this issue and this cycle of anxiety is at the center. It sets the backdrop for the end of Jesus' story in Matthew. You see, the context of the first century Jewish world at Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem at Passover was one of deep anxiety. And it plays a central role in how this story goes. I just want to set the scene for his arrival in Jerusalem. And you can tell me from home if anxiety is at play. So first, I want to talk about the situation that Jesus is walking into. Jesus is walking into a situation of long-suffering, and in deep anticipation for relief. You see, Israel had been under brutal Roman occupation at this point in their history for almost 100 years. And the Romans were not the best people to be ruled by. They loved crucifying people. It was one of their favorite pastimes. And they also taxed the living heck out of people. And the Israelites, in this space of oppression and long suffering, had turned to the Old Testament looking for hope. They had especially turned to the prophets, these characters that had predicted the moment when God would restore his world. And they looked to the prophets to find this hope for relief. And from the stories and the prophecies of Israel's past, they had come to place most of their hope in one figure, the hope of this promised king of God, the Messiah, a king that they believed would come one day to defeat the enemies of God's people and to make things right. Kings, like their kings of old, these warrior kings who would restore Israel to glory. A hope that unsurprisingly had become tied to victory over Rome. So you have this building tension, you have this anticipation for the Messiah to arrive soon to defeat the Romans. That was what they expected. Next, combine this underlying boiling tension with the setting Jesus is walking into. Jerusalem at Passover. You see, Passover was the annual festival that retold the Exodus story. It was a central festival in celebration of God's people throughout the year. And the story of the Exodus might ring some bells if you were a first century Jewish person. It is the story of God raising a deliverer, Moses, to free his people, the Israelites, by defeating the enemies of God, the Pharaoh, and Egypt. Do you think that might have rang some bells and gotten the heart going to a bunch of people being occupied by this pagan Roman empire? And to make matters worse, during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem would explode. 
They believe, when you look at archaeological records, that the population of Jerusalem was roughly 50,000 people at this time, and it would grow to upwards of 200,000 people during the course of this week. Because Passover was one of the holidays, one of the festivals that uh, the Israelites would pilgrim take a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem to celebrate. They would come to the temple, temple in droves, and the city would just expand. So you have a wildly overcrowded city that's full of oppressed people smushed together like a can of sardines with their oppressors, Roman tax collectors and Roman soldiers on every corner, and the oppressed people are retelling what? A story about how God deals with the enemies of his people by raising a deliverer. Unsurprisingly, this had made Passover one of the most tense and one of the most hostile and charged times of the year. In recent decades, it had become a time of riots and revolts for the Jewish people. And under Roman rule, the response was consistent, fierce suppression. Rome shut that down. And Rome had made it abundantly clear to Israel's leadership at that time. They had to do one thing, keep the peace, maintain order, or face the consequences utter destruction. So let's summarize the picture at hand and see if we have our balloon of anxiety getting filled. You have long suffering due to Roman oppression and anticipation that God would act through his Messiah any day now. You had a massive, overly crowded city filled with two types of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. You have a festival that retold a story about how God acts to destroy evil empires, to free his people. And you had a religious leadership in way over their heads that knew that if they failed to maintain order, they would lose everything. How's your balloon doing? Do you think this checks off the box for big, vague, overwhelming anxiety and dread? So keep that balloon in mind. And now let's look at how Jesus enters the scene. We read in Matthew 21, 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And once you find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. So there's this moment, right, where he's planned this arrival. And there's like a code word. It's like a spy movie. It's awesome. And then it goes on. Verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Hold this part in your mind. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foil of a donkey. Disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So think of this tension. Now look at how Jesus arrives. He arrives with this elaborate, planned, intentional entrance that introduces him with a bang. He comes down the Mount of Olives, which is a mount right out the main entrance of Jerusalem. And he comes down that mount riding on a donkey. And this is a very intentional decision by Jesus. If you turn to your Old Testament, you're going to find this prophet, Zechariah. And in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 9, you're going to find one of those messianic prophecies 
that the Jewish people had pulled their hopes for relief from. And that prophecy predicted that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on what? On a donkey. And if you read your Old Testament, you would also find some stories about Israel's most important kings, specifically David and King Solomon. And when they arrived in Jerusalem to claim their throne, they entered in the exact same way, coming down the Mount of Olives to reclaim their city. Jesus enters Jerusalem at Passover, this packed, intense time of the year with messianic and kingship imageries from the stories of these oppressed people's past. And in doing so, he says clearly, the Messiah you've been longing for is here. And the crowds pick it up. Look at what they do. They shout, Hosanna, which means save us, son of David, messianic king. Blessed are you who comes in the name of our God. They think they get it. They think it's time for the Messiah, King Jesus, to defeat Rome, to take get back God's city. The king is here. And we know that he's here for a different purpose, a different mission, a mission of peace and self-sacrifice, a mission with bigger enemies in mind, evil itself. But that doesn't matter because what happens, the anxiety keeps boiling. The text says that the city was stirred which is actually better translated as disturbed or sent into turmoil. And then, with all of this going on, Jesus bams it up another level. We read, continuing on in verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And as the story goes, Jesus goes on to heal the sick and the lame and to where the religious leaders are not too pleased with all that's taken place. So, having entered Jerusalem as the king of God's people, Jesus goes straight to the temple, the central symbol of Israel's political and religious life. It's like the White House and the National Cathedral blended into one building, and he goes on a rampage. He starts acting like he owns the place. He just shuts it down. And I believe this is all part of Jesus taking on his next central role in this new Exodus story. Is Jesus, as the king promised, taking on the role of the prophet of God. He said the prophets, like I said, were these characters from the Old Testament that were the mouthpieces of God. And their primary function was to be sent by God to call his people back to what they were supposed to be, to be a blessing of the nations when they started going astray. They were the people who warned them, turn back, become what you were meant to be. And Jesus is taking up this mantle in this story. He starts calling his people and their leadership to go that different way, that kingdom way. This is all about the path that he sees that they are on and the path that he is saying you need to turn to, the one that he's calling them to as part of the new exodus. Let me show you what I mean. First, Jesus flips over the tables of the money changers. Now, these tables were where people could exchange money of different, different types of currency for a fee to buy sacrificial animals to worship at the temple or to worship during Passover. They weren't inherently a bad thing. You had to exchange your coins to buy animals to take part in the celebration. But here's the thing. The tables had only recently, in the last few years, been moved inside the temple itself. 
They had previously been out in the city of Jerusalem, but the high priest recently had moved them into the temple walls so he can make a profit out of what they were selling there. And then look at what Jesus focuses on. He focuses on the people selling doves specifically. And you might shrug that off, but this is important. You see, doves were the sacrifice of the poor in Israelite culture. If you went back and read the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, you would know that poor Israelites, if they couldn't afford a lamb, could buy a dove instead so they could take part in the worship of God. So what happens in this scene? Jesus walks into the space of worship that found its roots in the Exodus story when they made the tabernacle the house of God. It was this building that was deeply rooted in God's desire to dwell with and to transform his people into a community of his own character in the world. A people of justice, reconciliation, right relationships, peace, healing. And he walks into the house of God, the symbol of who they were called to be, and what does he find? Not that. No, see, he finds the poor being taken advantage of within the temple walls itself. And then he quotes two prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says, this was meant to be a house of prayer, a house of worship to our God, and you are making it into a den of robbers. He walks into the temple and he says, you were called to be a light to the nations, a people liberated to bless others, a people that were distinct, that could show God's character to the world and how you lived a different way, a better way, a, a more just way. And instead, what have I found? I have found you going the totally opposite direction. You have chosen a path that is rejecting that calling. And that path is leading you to disaster. And let's be honest. This is the Jesus that we often don't like in the Gospels. The prophet Jesus speaking truth to power, especially when that power is being used and abused by the people of God. Jesus, the prophet, calling God's people back to the path that they were created to live out when they go the wrong way, the way of this world. I mean, this is the scary Jesus to many of us. But I think we're missing the point of Jesus as a prophet when we read it that way. You see, I think Jesus does this. He speaks in this way. He acts out in this way out of deep love. I think he just deeply wants to make a point because he sees the writing on the wall. The current path that the leadership of God's people is leading them down is one going towards disaster. And he loves God's people so dearly. He wants so desperately for them to turn back, to take part in this new exodus. He just wants to call them to it. So he goes and he acts like a prophet because he sees what's going on. He sees the leaders of Israel turning the temple into a source of complacency. We don't need to be transformed because we have the temple. We have God's house. We are unique in that way and we can get power from it. It's not being a beacon of transformation right relationship and justice like it was meant to be. They've made it into a den of robbers. He sees the people of God turning to the ways of the kingdom of our world. You were created to be a beacon of justice, hope, new life in the midst of this world because God is hoping to save it. And instead, he sees God's people living in injustice and greed, mistreating the poor, breaking right relationships, no peace. And above all, I think Jesus sees the path that they have begun to clamor for. The path that was made clear when they cheered for his arrival in the story that they had playing in their heads, the path of the kingdoms of our world, the path that they've always gone, the path of conflict, violence, 
and retaliation. Jesus sees what's going on in Israel. He sees how charged it is, and he sees that they are on this path leading towards holy war with Rome, telling themselves that God wants them to go to war with this empire, even though they were created to be a light to the other nations of the world. And in all of that, Jesus says, that's not who you were called to be. That is not the path of the kingdom. That is not the path of self-sacrificial love and peace. You were created to shine into our world something better, something new. I think Jesus sees their current path, and he sees that balloon of fear and anxiety merging together, and he sees exactly where it's leading them. And in love, Jesus tries to call them back from the brink. Stop, turn, be part of the new exodus, take part in the new kingdom path. Jesus is trying desperately to call God's people off the ledge, and back to what they were called to be. And on one hand, we know how the story ends. It ends in tragedy. In seven days, we know what's happened. Because when it's all said and done, that anxiety cycle is going to run in the kingdom of our world. It will seek to simplify, resolve, and cope. In fear, they're going to see the king and the healer, not as the solution, but as the problem itself. They're going to look at Jesus, and they're not going to see him as the one trying to let air out of the balloon. They're going to see him as a needle flying towards this boiling situation when he's really trying to heal what's going on underneath. And to gain that false sense of relief, they will attack the prophet, the truth speaker, in fear. They will make him a scapegoat They will reject the kingdom path, and in seven days, the powerful leaders of Jerusalem and Rome will kill the Messiah, thinking they found relief. But in reality, the balloon continues to fear. It grows bigger and is left unchecked. Next time, there isn't a prophet to call them back, and in 40 years from this point, Israel commits to the same path that the kingdoms of our world have always gone, the path of violence. They seek out conflict with Rome believing that God wants them to do that. And quickly, in the middle of that conflict, it becomes clear that the real needle was never Jesus. It was always the path that they had chosen instead of him. And pop, disaster. Israel, the temple, the leadership, it's all destroyed. It is just a dark and tragic story in so many ways. And yet, the good news of the kingdom will ring out. See, despite everything seemingly gone wrong, we are going to come to find over the next few weeks that in the upside-down kingdom, the rescue plan of God's new exodus is not off the tracks. That somehow, in Jesus' refusal to fight evil with evil, in his commitment utterly to this different path, in his willingness to become a sacrifice for the healing of our world, what looks like defeat is going to become God's ultimate victory over his truest enemy, evil and death itself. That somehow, in the darkness of this story, we find God bringing his new exodus liberation from evil fully in an upside-down moment of vindication and resurrection. And that is the story we are going to sit with through Easter. But for today, I just want to sit with this part of the story. You see, I've been struggling all week to think about how this story can direct us. And on one hand, I think it teaches us just so much about who Jesus is and what he came to do. 
Jesus as a new kind of king of sacrificial love. Jesus as a new prophet calling God's people to relinquish the ways of this world, to turn back from the paths and the cycles that may feel good when we're in them, but ultimately break us and the people around us. And we have to be willing to find that Jesus in stories like this. We can't turn back from them. We have to hear him. We have to let him confront and challenge us to go a different way. But honestly, for this week, this story speaks to me about the role of fear and anxiety when it comes to embracing the path of the kingdom. See, those cycles of fear, anxiety, scapegoating, false coping that so easily lead us astray and break us and lead us to hurt others that keep us from embracing the kingdom when it's right in front of us. Those are the cycles in view in this story. And I don't know about y'all, but I relate to having Jesus right in front of me doing kingdom work and I miss him because I'm so overwhelmed by fear and anxiety. There are just times when those cycles of anxiety, they build and they build and they build and that balloon feels so full of fear and anxiety and I just miss reality. I miss the world around me because I can't see clearly who I am or what I'm called to do because it just clouds my vision. But the power of this story is that the new exodus offers and challenges me with a new path forward, a path of liberation from those cycles. The new exodus wants to liberate us from those chains. In those moments when I'm stuck in cycles of fear and anxiety, Jesus the prophet calls to me. He says, you need to go a different way. You need to get help. You need to change your current path. He confronts me, not out of anger, but out of desperate love because he knows where the path that I'm on is leading me. And he wants to exodus me to true freedom, to true life on the other side of breaking those chains. And I just think that's good news. I don't know about you, but I could use some freedom and some liberation from some of the fear and the anxiety that binds my life. But this story also is powerful because it also reminds me that this isn't just for ourselves. It's also about what we are called to be as the people of God. We must be freed from those cycles so we can see our world correctly, but also so we can take part in bringing new Exodus liberation to a world bound by those cycles still. The people of God were created to be a conduit of his blessing and healing, and we cannot give to the world what we don't have ourselves. We must find his peace, his love, his compassion, his healing, his exodus freedom, so that we can be the blessing of God. The prophet Jesus says you must face these deep cycles and heal from them in yourself so you can find the kingdom of God for yourself so you can give it away to the blessing of a world that desperately needs it. That is the path we are called to. And Jesus says we must get this right to be his people. And I don't know about you, but that calling and that challenge has just spoken to me as I've navigated this season. That calling out of the cycles of anxiety, fear, control, coping, that calling into the freedom of the new exodus for the blessing of our world, that calling of the prophet Jesus as he speaks to me in my complacency, he speaks to me in the places I'm stuck, and he says, come, find new life, find freedom, find something better. And if you're anything like me, that is good news. Let's pray. Father God, we know that this is a time that is so hard, that is so scary, that feels so out of control. But Lord, we remember that your story is one of freedom, 
Your story is one of exodus liberation. Your story is one of healing. And God, there are times where sometimes I don't want to hear that good news. I don't want to hear your call to go a different way. I'm just stuck where I'm at. And I thank you, God, for being a God who is willing to send a son that won't let me do that. A son that confronts, a son that calls, a son that challenges, a son that for my own good doesn't let me stay where I'm at. Help us break the cycles of fear and anxiety. Help us hear the words of your prophet, your son, your Messiah, and let us follow him so we can be a part of the healing of our world. We thank you, God. We trust you. We find you in this time. We pray all this in your holy name.